Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For most countries in Africa, China is a top trade partner. African businessmen now live in China. Some have Chinese partners. We'll hear from a filmmaker who explores race and biracial issues in China. The Folk Alliance International Conference is serious about its Latin and indigenous music. Catalina Maria Johnson shares some fabulous artists from the conference on Global Notes. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Migration is producing lots of interesting stories, and we're going to hear about one now with Kathy Huang. She's a filmmaker, and she's been producing a film called Guangzhou, A Love Story. Thanks very much for joining us, Kathy. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me about your project and how you got involved in telling the stories of uh, these people in Guangzhou. Sure. Um, well, back in 2008, I had read this article basically saying that Guangzhou, which is you know what many people consider the manufacturing capital of China, had become this hotbed of African migration. Uh, you know, I'd heard about Chinese people going over to Africa to look for investment opportunities and natural resources, but I had very rarely heard about Africans going to China in the sort of reverse migration. And I was very curious what this looked like on a kind of day-to-day basis on a ground-level view, uh, knowing what I did about how insular China is. I mean, it only really started opening up its borders to foreigners in the 1970s. And I think a lot of average Chinese folks have never really encountered people of different races. Most of what they know is from media, especially Western media. So I was very curious about how this was all transpiring, especially knowing that the African migration into China was different than previous forms of migrations of uh, other foreigners and that the African migrants that were coming to China were very much integrated into traditional and working class Chinese neighborhoods. So I knew uh, that there were bound to be very interesting interactions happening on a ground level. Also with us is Heidi Haugen, and she is with the Department of Sociology and Human Geography at the University of Oslo. She's been uh, studying what's going on in Guangzhou. And thanks for joining us, Heidi. Thank you. Um, tell us more about these um, the, the, the kind of numbers that we know uh, about how many people are going to Guangzhou from Africa and what they're doing there. So we have very good numbers on how many Africans enter Guangzhou or enter China. And that's about half a million per year. But many of these people are, or most of them, are traders who go to China, they stay for a few weeks, make some orders, send a container or bring some goods with them back on the airplane 
home and then maybe return after three months or half a year or whenever they have raised enough capital to come back and trade again. So what we don't know so much about is how many Africans are staying in uh, South China or Guangzhou on a more permanent basis. But the number would be around perhaps 20, 30,000. And it was going up for a very long time for different reasons, partly because the borders to Europe and the U.S. were closed. So some were coming to trade, but there were also people coming because they wanted to find a better life somewhere. And China was a country that at the time was open to migration. Are they coming from any particular point in Africa? Is it from countries that really do a lot of trade with China? Or is it um, from countries that are where people need more opportunities? One of the most fascinating things I think about Africans in Guangzhou is that you'll find Africans from every single country in Africa because every single country in Africa needs Chinese consumer goods. So even a country like Equatorial Guinea or Cape Verde, there will be some people there trading. But there are also some countries with a longer migration history to Asia in general. So in particular, Nigeria has had labor migrants going to the Philippines, South Korea, Japan for several decades. And then some of those people started crossing over into mainland China in the 1990s and form the first sort of stable community there. Kathy, your film goes into people who've been there in Guangzhou for a long time, uh, and some of them are, have got couples and their children. Um, could you introduce us to some, some people who have been there for a long time and where they're from and what kind of things they're doing there? So my actual feature-length documentary follows one African Chinese family. So it's a Congolese businessman named Julio and his Chinese wife. Julio is a delightful, charismatic Congolese businessman who has been in China for over 30 years. He arrived in the late 1980s as part of a wave of African students who had entered China, uh, been welcomed by the Chinese government to come and study, and nowadays works brokering trade deals for other Africans, mostly due to the fact that he speaks immaculate Chinese. Uh, his Mandarin is so much better than mine. I'm constantly floored by how good it is. His wife, Wendy, is a former factory girl who's also a migrant herself. She came from northern China, a rural village. And over the past 10 years, they've been married and have created a life for themselves and their two daughters, Mariana and Yvonne. I've seen clips of the film, and you have uh, amazing footage of these young biracial girls in school and uh, having experiences at lunchtime and in the classroom. And uh, it gets pretty complicated for these young people because uh, it's, uh, it looks like a lot of young people in China have not, uh, you know, have no experience with biracial people. Yeah, it was definitely something that drew me to the story. You know, I started off making this film thinking I was making a film about the experiences of African migrants in China. But then I stumbled upon all these interracial couples and a whole new generation of children, of biracial children who are growing up in China, have Chinese passports, speak fluent Chinese, Mandarin, 
or other dialects, sometimes Cantonese, and yet are facing this issue of whether or not they will ever truly be accepted as Chinese. And I think the stories of Mariana and Yvonne illustrate this very well. The girls have never left China. They've never been to Africa. They don't speak any of the languages of their father's country. They don't speak French or Lingala. And for all practical purposes, are Chinese. But wherever they go, and you know, whenever I walk down the street with them, they're constantly greeted as foreigners. And people are constantly amazed at how good their Mandarin is and just very taken aback that these girls who look so foreign could be so Chinese at the same time. Well, this is almost a universal migration issue when the father, he, he wants to go back to Congo at some point, and he wants his daughters to, to know Congo and to have a life there. He thinks they'll, they'll have better possibilities in Congo. You know, it's it's amazing. I tell people that Julio wants to go back to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they're like, "Is is he mad? Does he see what's happening in the news?" But you know, for Julio, he's very much a forward thinker. He's very much a pioneer, and he sees, I think, two trends that are really kind of driving his decision to want to go back to Kinshasa. The first being that China's markets are slowing; they're saturated. And it's harder and harder to make a living for him. He's also frustrated with constantly having to renew his visa every couple of years. And you know, even after having been in China for 30 years and having a Chinese wife and Chinese children, he himself can never become Chinese. So he sees that he has limited prospects in China. Whereas you know, the DRC is you know, yes, it may be unstable and have turbulent politics. But there's room for growth, and he would really be one of the pioneers going out there and etching out economic possibilities for himself. Uh, the other thing that he's is worried about are the future possibilities for his daughters. He sees how people, you know, regard them as foreigners, and you know, what kind of life will they have in China? What kind of jobs can they have? What are their prospects for marriage? Who knows? I mean, this generation of biracial children that we're seeing come up between African migrants and Chinese women, this is fairly new. I would say kind of the heyday of African migration into China was the early 2000s up until 2008. And so you have all these children that were born during that time. And now they're all teenagers, some are in their early 20s, and they're having to make these choices of whether or not to stay in China, how to find employment, how to find uh, life partners. Ultimately, Julio seems determined to go back to Congo when you're filming. Has, has he done so? Has they, have they made the move? The family as a whole has not traveled back to the Congo. Uh, Wendy and the girls still have not set foot in Africa. But Julio himself has started to make these kind of reconnaissance trips, I would call them, where he goes back to Kinshasa to scope out possible business investments and to reconnect with family and friends to start to reforge those connections. So he's he's really moving ahead with this plan. He's very optimistic about the kind of life that he can build for his family in the Congo. I'm talking with Kathy Huang. She's a filmmaker. She's making a movie about Guangzhou and the Africans who've migrated there, the biracial couples that are there. And also with us is Heidi Haugen, and she is at the Department of Sociology and Human Geography at the University of Oslo. 
how do you how do we look at what's happening in China? It seems like they are having issues that a, a place goes through when it hasn't had a lot of uh, migration into the country. When we hear stories about people, you know, thinking they their children may not have a future because they're biracial, is this something China is getting over, or is seeing enough migration to to make it uh, to make a change in in their strategies and attitudes? Mm, I think, if anything, sadly, China is copying the migration policies of Europe and North America at the moment. So that's the parts of the world that they're looking to when they want to shape their own migration policy. So they want to attract whom they see as highly attractive immigrants, so uh, people with high education, people with a lot of money to invest, and they want to keep other migrants out, just like uh, Europe does and North, North America mostly does. So I don't think China is exceptional in that way. And also, Kathy, as heartbreaking as the stories that you're telling with your film are, it's also a reminder of how quickly things can change. Like you said, it's only been a few decades that China has been open to immigration at all. So, yes, on the one hand, these children are facing an extreme amount of prejudice and hardship. But on the other hand, it's also quite exceptional to see how African men and some women too are welcomed into greater Chinese families through marriage and accepted as part of these families in a country that has been closed off for so long. So that's why I think it's so important to tell the stories from the ground up like like you're doing. How does that work, Kathy, with the acceptance level uh, for families? I imagine the the in-laws, uh, what, what, are they okay with everything? You know, it varies. It really does. I mean, I think most people assume, oh, God, it's going to be so hard for them. And I've seen situations where for a while I was following a young woman, a young Cantonese woman who had married a Nigerian man and her family was not accepting at all. She had gotten pregnant. And when they heard that she was pregnant, they actually recommended that she get an abortion because they were so horrified by her having uh, an African partner. But, you know, even in that situation, she persisted in, in remaining with him. They had the child. And as soon as they had the child, the grandparents came around. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to, I think, for grandparents to see grandchildren and not feel love and affection. And I think that example demonstrates how often, you know, people come in with discrimination or racist notions. But once they're forced to interact with African migrants, they change. And in the case of someone like Julio, the Congolese businessman I'm following, who speaks such beautiful Mandarin and has such a deep understanding of Chinese culture and how to deal with all types of situations, People meet Julio and whatever preconceived notions they have of Africans just go flying out the door. It's about being able to communicate, I think, is a very strong part of how these discriminatory notions are broken down. So I think, you know, being able to cross the language barrier is very important in getting people to accept outsiders once people can communicate freely with them. Yeah, if I may add, these marriages sometimes also have a financial side that's beneficial to both the, the African families and the Chinese families. 
in that many families in South China own small factories or own trading enterprises. And now that demand from the West because of the financial crisis has gone down, they are looking for new markets. They're looking for people to buy what they're producing. And who's better to know the markets than those who come from there, right? So a lot of unions between West African men or Congolese men and Chinese women where the Chinese woman's family owns a factory and the West African has deep knowledge of the market and can ensure that the goods that are produced <laughs> reach their customers and get sold. Yeah, the, the ultimate mercantile uh, union, I guess. <laughs> you know, I've been reading some articles that uh, that talk generally about attitudes towards Africans in China, and they seem to almost mimic attitudes of bigoted people in this country who think, well, African-Americans bring crime, they bring this, they bring that. And it almost sounds like they, uh, in China, have brought the same kind of attitude towards African migrants, that they're, they're worried about crime and, uh, you know, problems that, that they, they just associate with Africans. If you think about China being such a large country, there are a lot of Chinese people who don't have the opportunity to interact with Africans. And so what they understand of Africans comes from the news, it comes from media, it comes from Hollywood. And those are the images that we traffic in you know, disease, crime, violence. So it's no wonder that you have a lot of Chinese people meeting Africans for the first time and they're frightened. They're frightened. And I think that's a very large problem that we have to fix. This is part of why I'm making this film to show, you know, there were so many other stories I could have focused on that would have been much more negative in nature. And what you often see in news articles and reports when you hear about Africans in China. But I wanted to show a different story, a story about a family, just a, an ordinary loving family trying to make their way through China. And I think it's really important to have these more positive and realistic images of Africans in China. Heidi? I also find it striking that uh, the prejudice is not necessarily linked to educational levels. So the students that I teach at the university in Guangzhou are often more prejudiced than a 17-year-old, 18-year-old from the countryside who's come to Guangzhou to find work. So those young people from the countryside who come to the city in search of work are open to a cosmopolitan experience. They are ready to go and grab a business opportunity where they can find it or just grab a job where they can find it. And they have this close day-to-day -day interaction with Africans and learn a new language. They learn about a new part of the world. And many of them really appreciate this cosmopolitan experience, whereas I often have university students who won't even go to the parts of the city where they know there are many Africans, and they cite reasons such as HIV and AIDS. Just to piggyback off what Heidi is saying, because it's, it's a really good point, in my interactions with interracial couples in China, what I often find is that the Chinese woman who decides to take on an African partner often 
they are migrants themselves. Uh, for example, Wendy, who married Julio, is coming from a rural village in northern China. And they do come to the cities with, as Heidi mentioned, a very open attitude. Um, and they're very curious. They have this curiosity about the world. And they're very observant and they're learning and they're trying to make their, their way through this strange territory, just like the Africans are. And in that sense, they have this deep kinship with the African migrants um, and find that they have principles that are aligned about trying to get ahead and trying to work hard to get ahead. In this country, uh, it seems like biracial people have a certain amount, if they can work it right um, and if they can overcome a lot of things, they can uh, have a certain kind of cachet. I mean, we, we've just had a biracial <laughs> president. There are right. the kind of avenues where it can help you, and people find it attractive. Uh, can you ever see that in China? The Obama family gave biracial children and their parents a lot of hope. And many people would like cite their <laughs> cite Obama to show that you know there's no limits to what these children can reach despite the obstacles that face them right now. Kathy, do you have some thoughts about that? Well, you know, you do see African performers in Chinese media. They're quite popular. If you are African and can speak fluent Chinese, uh, people love to watch you <laughs> on television. Uh, and they have cachet. And I am curious myself to watch as this generation of biracial children as they grow older, how they are able to kind of find a place for themselves in Chinese media. I can see some of them going on to become talk show hosts, musicians, CEOs, especially with the business training that they're getting from their parents. I mean, I'm expecting great things from these children. Uh, it's just that they will have a you know, harder route to travel to get there. That was filmmaker Kathy Huang, and we're talking about mixed-race children of African migrants to China. Also with me is Heidi Haugren from the University of Oslo. After the break, we'll hear more about the Guangzhou Love Story Project. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about African migration into China with sociologist Heidi Haugren and filmmaker Kathy Huang. And Kathy's working on a film that's tentatively titled Guangzhou, A Love Story. And she's interviewed African and Chinese migrant couples in China's industrial heartland. Unlike most Chinese people, the couples and children have to navigate complex issues of identity. And here's a clip from one of the African dads. Really, for sure, I hate um, all these small Chinese eyes. I don't like it. And I was telling my baby, I was telling my wife before we had baby, that please pray to God. I don't want you to have baby that have Chinese eyes. Okay. So we pray, and God answers us. You can see they don't really look like pure Asia. You can see the Africans inside them. <laughs> But many of these biracial children want nothing more than to look and feel Chinese. Filmmaker Kathy Huang reflects on another scene from the film where a girl named Mariana laments her African appearance. 
Actually, you know, I really connected to Mariana because I grew up in an area which was predominantly white. And I remember growing up feeling that way, thinking, oh, why is my nose so flat? Why don't my eyes look the same as the other kids in the class? So I, I think it's a very common sentiment uh, for children to just want to fit in. And uh, at the age when I interviewed her, she was seven. That's your, That clip was when she was seven years old, and she's now almost 12. <laughs> this is a longitudinal project. I've been fo- following the family for a while. And her views, you know, I asked her recently about that, about feeling uh, like she wanted to be Chinese. And she said to me, what? I said that? I don't feel that way anymore. I'm proud of who I am. <laughs> so well, I think it will it will come and go in waves as, you know, you know, I'm sure as she heads into her teen years, she'll um, probably get a little bit more angsty again. But this idea of identity and how it fluctuates, it, it's, it's fascinating to watch it change over a person's lifetime. That's what I'm hoping to do with the film. And as important as their identities, I think it's challenging what it means to be Chinese for all Chinese people when these biracial children grow up. Because they are Chinese citizens. They are registered with the same Chinese uh, nationality or minority in some cases as their Chinese mothers. They speak Chinese. Their education is Chinese. So they cannot be anything but Chinese. Still, they don't look traditionally Chinese. So this will force China also to reconsider its own identity and whether that identity can sustainably be based on race. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that you're saying that, Heidi, because I I think about how, so Julio and Wendy have two daughters, and the oldest actually looks more mixed race, um, and the youngest looks African. And as the two of them walk around Guangzhou, what I've discovered is that the younger one who looks more African tends to evoke more positive reactions from people. Uh, they're very impressed by how well she speaks Chinese and uh, they're always telling her, you have such big eyes, you're so pretty. Whereas the older one who looks a little bit more mixed race speaks Chinese just as well, um, tends not to kind of generate the same kind of um, positive attitudes from the people she encounters. It's my theory that Mariana, the oldest one, might evoke more feelings of discomfort related to what Heidi was talking about. You know, Chinese people having to confront who is Chinese? What does that mean? And Mariana in this form, in this figure of this young girl, it's it can be uncomfortable for them to have to think about this in a way that they haven't before. I'm talking with Kathy Wong. She's making a film about Guangzhou where she looks at African migrants and couples that are uh, in Guangzhou. Uh, and also with me is Heidi Hauger, and she is with the Department of Sociology and Human Geography at the University of Oslo and has been studying some of the statistics on this. I know that most of the Africans who go to China are males, but um, are there African women who are coming to China and finding Chinese men? Does that happen? There are many African women who are going to China. And whether the people who go are men or women depends a lot on the trading culture in the country they come from. So some African countries, of course, have a very vibrant trading culture among women. Congo is one of those countries. Uh, Angola, Senegal. And 
where there are trading opportunities, these women go. So before they went to Dubai or they went to Istanbul, now they go directly to Guangzhou because that's where the goods that are sold in those other places are produced anyway. But many of them tend to go back and forth and not stay on in China. So for the couples that are mixed where the woman is uh, African that I've heard of, it's mostly when Chinese men have moved to African countries and they marry locally. This was actually a question I would ask a lot of the couples I ran into, the interracial couples. I'd say to them, why don't we see more African women with Chinese men? As Heidi was saying, you do see it on the African continent, but in China, you very rarely see it. And I think it is partly logistical, as Heidi was saying, that a lot of the African women who come to China don't stay often, uh, don't stay for long periods of time. Or often if they do, it's because they're coming with their African uh, husband. But when I would so talk to my... certain status. So yeah. the reason why they can go in the first place is that they've uh, accumulated a certain amount of capital and often they've needed uh, years and years and or decades to do that, to build themselves up as trading women like that. So by the time they go to China, they're already very well settled in a family, whereas you've seen young African men coming as students or in search of work, so without having the same kinds of family commitments already, so they would be more open to a marriage in China. I mean, there's also the issue of gender dynamics and racism and nationalism that all combine in this kind of cocktail that, you know, leads to us not seeing as many of those pairings as we would, say, Chinese women with African men. It's, it's it's very similar, I think, to the kind of interracial couplings we see in America, where, for example, Asian women often tend to marry outside of their race, whereas you don't see as many Asian American men doing the same. Um, I remember talking to my subjects about this and asking them what they thought, and they had a whole variety of responses, everything from, you know, Chinese men aren't romantic enough to attract <laughs> African women. They don't know how to woo them and court them properly to, you know, I had people say, well, it's because Chinese men are physically diminutive and smaller than African women, and it would make them lose face to be with uh, an African woman. And for a man in China to be with an African woman would make him lose face. So there's the racist component as well. I think these are all factors that along with the logistics, don't let us see as many of those types of pairings. This is a, has been a thing with Caucasians as well, that in the past you saw most couples that were mixed was a Caucasian man with a Chinese woman, whereas now you see many more uh, Chinese men with Caucasian women. So it's also, I think, a matter of normalizing, of having more contact, that over time relations are normalized and you see the other party as first and foremost as another human being that you might fall in love with and not as a race. There's so much controversy surrounding migration these days. When you get into it at this level, are either of you optimistic or pessimistic about what's going on these days? I think, I mean, both Heidi and I are we're coming from Western countries or Heidi's in Norway and I'm in America and, you know, 
I feel like we're seeing a lot of borders being, you know, closed down and this feeling of xenophobia on the rise and countries wanting to isolate themselves. It is, it can, it's a pretty bleak view of the world that you can really have right now if you just scan the news headlines. My hope, my optimism comes from, you know, cases like the story that I'm documenting, that on the ground, things are changing and they just haven't had a chance to filter up yet. And I just hope that trend continues. Heidi, you have some thoughts on that? I agree. I think you see a lot of positive interactions on the ground. You see friendships being made, business partnerships being made, romantic relationships being made. But when it comes to the immigration policy, it's really worrying that China is copying the West without looking at the benefits that migration has had for South China and for Chinese exports and for carrying China through the economic crisis in 2007-2008, where African countries picked up a lot of the slack that was left when demand fell in Europe and the US. And these goods would not be exported had it not been for migration in both directions, both from China to African countries, where you see hundreds of thousands of Chinese people going, and in the reverse direction from African countries to China. So I think if the full economic benefits as well as the costs of having immigration would be taken into account, then the policy wouldn't be as restrictive as, as it has become. Heidi Haugen is from the University of Oslo, where she's with the Department of Sociology and Human Geography. And Kathy Huang is a filmmaker, and she is making a film about uh, Guangzhou, where a lot of Africans have migrated into China and the biracial couple there in particular. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening with marriage and migration in China. Thank you. Thank you. The Folk Alliance International Conference is serious about its Latin and indigenous music. Coming up after the break, Catalina Maria Johnson shares some fabulous artists from the conference on Global Notes. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And we are going to talk about the Folk Alliance International Conference that's just taken place. Catalina Maria Johnson was there, and this is the most down-homey folk traditional music we are going to hear throughout this segment. But these young people are children. They're children, exactly. They're 10 and 13 years old. Hi, Jerome. It's a pleasure to be here, as always, uh, here on uh, Worldview and talk about this amazing music. They're not only children. They're from Nashville, Tennessee, which you may have predicted, but you may not know that they're Indian American. And they talk about the Desi twist that they give to folk music. And that's what I want to share, some of the way that folk music which we've always considered very kind of Anglo and North American, is becoming an inclusive and an extended uh, version of what we've known for so long. And uh, I'm very glad about that. <laughs> Me too. And uh, this is Uma and Geary Peters and their song, How to Help the World. And they've got a website there. They've been on TED uh, Talks and things in Nashville and really have a lot of uh, fantastic material out there on their website, and sh- people can check them out. Uh, th- it's so cool that they're so young and so accomplished that Uma, there, ten years old, is playing claw hammer banjo with her right, with her hand. She's right. not picking; she's <laughs> she is playing it with her fingers. Yeah, yeah. It was quite a surprise. I have to say that this is my first experience at the Folk Alliance International Conference in Kansas City, Missouri, um, this year, and I'm, it's my understanding most years. Although they'll be in Montreal next year. Um, and I, I went partly um, encouraged because I'd heard that it was beginning to, after 30 years, it was 30 years old this year, to really begin to incorporate uh, a lot of other tendencies and in specifically uh, folk music that's being created by a nation of immigrants, despite the fact that the USCIS uh Immigration Services no longer considers that its mission to secure America's promise as a nation of immigrants. But they've also made a huge effort to bring in First Nations musicians from all over the world, but particularly Canada. And in the spirit of what I've learned about Canada and the protocol of a truth and reconciliation, before you start a performance, you uh, acknowledge the original keepers of the land that you are on. And here in Chicago, as far as I can tell, we are on the land of the Miami and the Illinois peoples. So I'd like to acknowledge that. In the spirit of truth and reconciliation and um, in some of the many things I learned. If you watch videos about uh, of some of these performers in Canada, the Digging Roots organization that's coming up later in this segment, we are, they, they introduce the, the hosts of the show all do that. They, yeah, they all say, hey, yeah. we're on the land of so-and-so. Of the original keepers. We're, we're guests, and you acknowledge that. But uh, now to go for, like, really far, uh, Folk Alliance International, as I said, is making an effort not just to incorporate indigenous and folk music from uh, – this, this nation of immigrants, the U.S. and Canada as a nation of immigrants and a nation of First Nations people, but from places that are pretty far. And I discovered some indigenous musicians from as far as Sweden, the Sami people, and then this amazing musician, Irmal, who's Yolngu from New Zealand. Off chains Any moment Flooding river, it could sweep us all away. 
and his song The Bridge and that's from he's an indigenous person from uh, New Zealand, Australia from New Zealand, Australia from northeastern Anham land in the northern territory of, Aust- of Australia and I heard uh, Irma live at the Folk Alliance International in Kansas City, Missouri so go figure um, he sounds like he brings a lot of integrity to his music it has a real strength I think many of the the musicians that we're highlighting in this segment do. I mean, um, they are peoples that have in different ways survived colonization, settlers, um, movement, forced movement, residential schools. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a mixture of experiences, most of them not positive. And they're still here playing their music. And now the music of the people, the folk music of uh North America is embracing them, and I really commend the Folk Alliance International for for focusing on that. Here in this area, we're so familiar with the Old Town School of Folk Music, which has been down this road thoroughly for a long time. Uh, We don't realize maybe the whole folk music uh, universe in North America has not quite gone as far as the Old Town. Not definitely. And in fact, uh, Karima Doughty from Old Town School was uh, representing us there uh, with a decolonizing folk panel. There were two very (laughs) fascinating panels. One was decolonizing folk, um, which... is about, again, exactly <laughs> the music that we're talking about and kind of the definition. Uh, I ju- we're realizing the, how do we define ourselves and who do we include and who do we exclude and, and why are we excluding um, certain peoples and why are we not allowing them in the definition of who we are. It's all just like what we just heard on Worldview, the whole yep. question of fluctuating identities. And um, the other panel was Indigenous State, which was fascinating. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But I want to share some music from uh, Mi Parte del Mundo, My Part of the World. Kansas City's Missouri's one of their most renowned uh, local, but also now nationally and internationally known Latinx groups is called Making Movies. And they are led, it's a quartet led by two brothers from Panama, um, sons of immigrants to Kansas City and a Mexican musician or a Mexican background musician and one North American. And Making Movies curate one of the rooms that had showcased a number of different artists and including themselves. It was called the Carnival Room and it was a little bit of a Latin ex-oasis <laughs> in the Folk Alliance International. And they caught, they became very renowned because they caught the ear of Los Lobos when they opened for them. And in fact, one of Los Lobos, Steve Berlin has produced some of their music. So here's one of Los Lobos, uh, David Hidalgo, participating in a song by Making Movies of Kansas City, who are an integral part now of the Folk Alliance International. Trabajar. 
That's Making Movies, one of the discoveries at the Folk, International, Folk Alliance International Conference. There are the hometown people there from Kansas City, Missouri. And their website is uh, terrific. They can give you, there's some fantastic videos that they're making. Uh, you, you, they're um, very out there with their immigration stuff, what they call their immigration tour, or their, their immigration is good tour, they called yeah. it. You know, they're, um, they're, they're just right out there. Yeah, uh, they were discoveries for me because in the Latinx universe, they're very well known. It was a discovery for me to see them tied into the folk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was. And yes, in their showcase, they uh, actually were wearing like black makeup around their eyes like they were punched. And they talked about, you know, feeling very punched and very, you know, beaten up in these times. So they're, they're uh, artivists, for sure, making movies. And, and you know their album is about, um, about three different people from three different places on the continent who all come together and realize they are the same person. And that, that last song is brother to brother, countryman to countryman. So, um, yeah, it, I think what was fascinating to me about the Folk Alliance International was this um, this finding of common ground, common ground in experiences, common ground in persistence and resistance, common ground in just the sheer music, the strings, the guitars, the violin fiddles, and the tight harmonies, and how that all came together. And here's a... a a surprise, I got to see uh, her live, although I'd heard her music. Elena and Los Fulanos is the name of the band. And she's from Nicaragua, um, based in D.C. And Nicaragua has a wonderful folk tradition. And it's also kind of so, uh, there's such an affinity there. So let's hear Elena and Los Fulanos. Es mi tierra, tierra complicada, llena de temblores y gran explosiones, repleta ternura y de corazón. Qué lindo es quererte, qué amargo es dejarte, qué dulce es tu amor. Mi tierra nacida en mí Tan lejos estás, tan lejos me fui Partí por razones, te desconocí Mi sangre caliente me llama That's uh, Elena and Los Fulanos from the Folk International Alliance International Conference and we're talking with Catalina Maria Johnson about what she saw there uh, they sound lovely. Yeah, it, it's such a, a deeply authentic music. I think folk music is a deeply authentic. It's it's in some ways it's very complex, but it's, it's simple and it's honest. And I think y you find that in all the folk traditions. So, and uh, she's based in D.C. now. She has kind of a punky haircut and, uh, and 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 talks about punk music influencing her and uh, so it's it's a more it's a it's a more complex thing than it may seem on the surface sure, when you get into sure. the more of the music um, and in the ultimate of complexity this organ this band uh, digging roots that we're going to end with 
is a Canadian uh, group from Ontario, Canada. Uh, they're a First Nation group. Uh, they're, they seem really accomplished. I was looking at their videos online, and they're, they're very, uh, they're blending a lot of different musics. Yes, definitely. And um, they're led by a, a kind of a power arts First Nation couple, uh, Raven and Shoshona. And Raven is Onwekonwe, which we know as Mohawk, and Anishinaabe, which we know as Algonquin. And Shoshona is Ashinit. Oops, Anishinaabekwe, that we know as Ojibwe. Very good. So they, um, they're very involved on a lot of levels. They're also artivists. And uh, Shoshona was on the um, indigenous state panel, which had Sami from Sweden, had Maori from New Zealand, had First Nations from Canada, uh, and several other uh, individuals representing their peoples. And facing this this very complex situation of um, how do you, what does it mean to decolonize? And every group and every peoples in, in different countries have, they're at different uh, levels in terms of the political power and um, how far you've gone, the, the levels of anger, the levels of everything. So. Um, well, let's hear a little bit of uh, Digging Roots, and I'll close out. Thank you very much for joining us, Catalina Maria Johnson, and music journalist, host of Beat Latino on Vocalo. And thanks for talking with us about the Folk Alliance International Conference. Uh, it sounds like it was fascinating. And here's the Digging Roots song, AK-47. They're talking about loading your AK-47 with love. With love. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.